0: Welcome to the READ Podcast, all of our readers in the research, education, advocacy world. READ connects you with prominent researchers, educators, and thought leaders who share their work, insights, and expertise in education and child development. I'm your host, Danielle Sperano, the WI's Research and Development Director, and I have to stop with all the adjectives because I'm delighted, inspired, and awe of my guest for this episode, Dr. Lakeisha Johnson. Dr. Johnson, welcome to the Read Podcast.
1: Thank you so much. And please do call me Lakeisha.
0: Okay, great. Thank you. So, Lakeisha, I I, honestly, when I was doing, when I was reading about you, learning more about you, I couldn't stop. And so I feel like we just have to jump into the episode because there's so much that I want to talk to you about. And before I do, I do want to introduce you to our Read listeners. With a short bio that you provided. So, thank you. So, more about Lakeisha. Lakeisha Johnson is an assistant professor in the School of Communication Science and Disorders and affiliate faculty at the Florida Center for Reading Research. Dr. Johnson's primary research interests include language and literacy development and executive functioning in African American children and others from underserved populations. You are also the director of the village and the founder of Maya's Book Nook, which I am so excited to talk to you about. And Again, I'm, I had to get stuck in in setting my own parameters for this conversation because there's so much that we're going to talk about today. And I just want to start with the softball question. Tell us your story, your background. What is driving your work?
1: Well, first, thank you so much for having me and for, you know, even thinking that my work is interesting enough to your listeners to hear from me twice. So <laughs> I I came into the field of speech language pathology by chance. I, growing up, I wanted to be a journalist, um, and I was super enthused and really wanted to go on that path, but... The college that I got into at South Carolina State, which is a small HBCU in South Carolina, didn't have that as a major. And so I was an English major and it just so happened that and I'd gotten a scholarship there. My family said, you're going right. So I just so happened to meet an SLP and she introduced me to the field and I fell in love with it. She took me on a tour of our speech and hearing clinic. I got to see therapy happening right there on campus, and it blew my mind. So from that second semester, my freshman year, I changed my major, and I've just been all in on the field of communication, science, and disorders. Um, as I came to graduate school at Florida State, I was really, really interested in, in vocabulary and language and literacy and just kind of the differences you know, that you'd kind of hear around Um, achievement gaps and student performances. And I was always really kind of intrigued by that. So I knew that I wanted to do some research in the field. Um, So I did a master's thesis, ended up going straight through. Right after I finished my master's, I got my PhD. I stayed for my PhD and worked on a language and literacy grant that was also at the Florida Center for Reading Research. And through that time, I really learned that I wanted to be an SLP who had worked in the schools. So I worked while I was doing my PhD. I wanted to make sure that I had practical, you know, hands-on knowledge that I could really apply not only to the research, but to the students that I would hopefully mentor in the future. And I've really just been in love with this field in terms of the progress, the impact that we can have in sometimes what appears to be really small, incremental kinds of ways, but that can really um have make a change in the trajectory of a person's life just in terms of their communication skills. I fell in love with the literacy side of things because I've always been an avid reader myself. I was that kid reading with a flashlight under the bed when it, you know like under the covers mm-hmm. when it was time to go to bed. And so I was fascinated by wanting to learn more about literacy and dialect, why some kids used it, why some didn't, even in families, my own family in particular. Some people used a whole lot. Some didn't. You know, I was really interested and I had lots of questions. So that's really kind of how I got into the field and how I kind of found a niche area, you know, within literacy and wanting to do more on that side.
0: Mm. I love how you talked about so much. First of all, I'm an avid reader, too. So that must be why we connect immediately. Yes, a amazing. lot of our readers probably are just they're also like as they're listening and or maybe even watching, connecting to you through this. I want to talk a little bit more about your school-based SLP work. And Definitely. you said that it provided this benefit of having this practical application, putting you sort of in the ground of how your research was informing different areas of education. And I heard that you had 45 students on your caseload. Was that right at the time?
1: Yes, I was a part-time P doing my clinical fellowship year. Florida does not have a cap. And so I had 45 students as a first year SLP. Also in my first year my PhD program, it was crazy, but I didn't know any other way. And thankfully I had experience doing um, therapy because in South Carolina at that point, you could be a full SLP with just your bachelor's degree in our state. Um, that law has since changed, but so as an undergrad, I had a client, a case, a client caseload at an elementary school of about fifty students. My senior year, I had to take our our final kind of certification exams as an undergrad. So when I came into the master's program, I didn't have to do any of that stuff again. And my scores were high enough. And, and when students were all nervous, like, oh, we're going to get our first client. I'm like, one? I've had like 30. I'm OK. I'm OK with this <laughs> one client, right? But, but yeah, my school-based experience was amazing. I worked at a Title I school here locally in Tallahassee. And it was really impactful because I could just see um, that these were such amazing kids with amazing families, um, but there were a lot of inequities, right? Just across the board. And even though I was only there two and a half days, it was always just, it was always just super cup filling, for lack of better words. You know, it was one of those things to where... I could really work as hard as I could and help to make some of those small kind of incremental changes that would really be impactful. And I still keep in touch with a lot of those students and the teachers that worked at that school for those few years that I was there. And it really, really did inform kind of the work. It really solidified why I knew I wanted to think about literacy and then the SLP's role in literacy, because I had so many students on my caseload who had language issues, but who are also, of course, struggling with with literacy development.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: that was one of the things because my my caseload was primarily pre-K to second grade.
0: Oh wow. Yeah. So you're right in it and really mm-hmm. seeing those students that are struggling and providing that support. Right. I right. side note love I should have become an SLP. I mean I love the work. I worked at, I worked as a teacher yeah. at Winward and it was so fulfilling. And a lot of my professional development work was through our school, our SLP. Our SLP actually provided mm-hmm. direct professional development to me. So I always consider myself like maybe an SLP in some way. Yes, even though I didn't go yes. right exactly. <laughs> that. So that's interesting that you you talked about that literacy support. As you're talking, I w- I was thinking about where you are. And we talked about a little bit about this before we started recording about where your work intersects mm-hmm. and we can talk a little bit more about this, but where I see a lot of your work is you're framing it as this both and, and not Definitely. even maybe both and, that it's comprehensive in the way that you're looking at research and child development through this integrated systems approach. Absolutely. And yeah, do you want to talk, I mean, do you want to talk a little bit more about what we mean by integrated systems approaches?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important that we think about all of the things when we when we look at academic outcomes, because of course, even for our students with communication disorders, our students with disabilities, we're our, our main goal as educators and practitioners are those academic outcomes and, you know, life goals, being able to participate as fully in the community, you know, as possible. And it is bigger than just this one child, right? What this, and of course we think about individual child kind of characteristics. So a lot of the work that we do intersects with thinking about the child level, the home level. So what's happening with parents? What are the things that parents are dealing with, right? Even, you know, parental education levels, parent literacy levels, all of those things are important, but that's also not the end, right? It's not just this one teacher, it's the school, this whole school environment, what the school culture is around literacy in particular, you know, and then community factors, the things that are happening in terms of how how close is the library, the you know, the closest public library, community centers, activities that are, you know, safe and nurturing for kids and their families within the community, access to health care. Crime, welfare on the other side, you know, crime, you know, maltreatment, all those kinds of things, those community level factors that may not be specifically impacting this one child, but can have a greater impact in terms of the system as a whole. So it's really this integrated approach that we like to think about when we do our work. It's not just. What is it happening with this kid? Of course, we look at the individual child, but also seeing that this is a very holistic process where we're looking at the, the child in the scope of this kind of integrated ecological system. And a lot of the work that we do with, with the village, which we'll talk about a little bit later, we framed in kind of the Brenner's ecological model.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you talked about ecological systems theory. It's one that I've been looking into as I'm finishing my doctorate program. And I just a little shout out to one of the papers that you co-authored with Nicole Patton Terry in 2022 of building this framework to understand and address vulnerability to reading difficulties among children in schools in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I like how you frame that, because when you think about the number of students who are vulnerable to poor reading achievement in school, it's large and increasing. Right. And the, there's wide disparities that just continue to exist. And you Absolutely. wonder how and why are those areas being addressed? When you talk about vulnerable populations, what do you mean by by that? In
1: our work, we uh, consider vulnerable populations to be those children and families that are traditionally underserved. Our expertise areas focus traditionally on African-American students, students growing up in poverty, and of course, students with disabilities. The work that we do is very interdisciplinary, which I love. We have you know, those like myself who are in communication disorders, special educators like Nicole, um, who's now in reading education. And so we really like to have a team of people that have these different perspectives. We have social workers. We have and even like in that paper that you mentioned, one of the co-authors is in InfoGrad in uh, the College of Information. Right. And so we have a a wide range of students, also in psychology, one of the other authors. So we we have this framework that also is helpful that we don't all come from the same background and training, which allows us to think about it from different perspectives and and through different lenses, which helps us be more aware of All of these factors, because I'll be honest, initially, before we started working with some of these other students, thinking about child welfare, right, and like economic vitality, those are not things that were on my radar around how kids learn to read, right? But they clearly make an impact because like you said, despite all that we know around how kids learn best to read, there are still widespread disparities, and throughout some of our, you know, this country's best efforts, you know, to provide funding and to do all the things that we know we should be doing, we still have kids not reading. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the numbers don't look good for any racial demographic group. I mean, it's right. even poorer for students of color, students who are poor, but then 45% ain't good for anybody, <laughs> right? Right. So mm-hmm. that's, that's not like something we want to hang our hats on either. Right.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's why I, I like how you frame this ecological systems approach, similar to how, how you think, I think, okay, so this is yes and approach of, we have this strong sense, a strong body of evidence in the science of reading of how reading develops, how, what best practices or effective practices are,
1: how mm-hmm. we could
0: sort of identify and remediate students with disabilities. And what are, how do we. How do we look at that within a comprehensive framework of identifying all those other factors you talked about? Because I think it's important to consider access to library to libraries or to books. Mm-hmm. Dr. Molly Ness, who was been on the podcast, is a instructor at the Winward Institute. Talks about this aspect of book deserts. But you mm-hmm. talked about in the paper incidences of gun violence and how that affects marginalized mm-hmm. communities, students of color, students in poverty. So. Yeah, that's trauma, I, I, right? Yeah, that,
1: that's trauma. Mm-hmm. And when you bring that to school, no matter despite best efforts from that teacher who may be there, who may have the high quality training around science and reading and instruction, and have the materials that they need, when you have all of these other things to keep in mind, right? When you have kids who are hungry, our our schools here are are creating parent resource rooms. They're ensuring, you know, through local organizations that. Kids who get to school late still have breakfast after breakfast, you know, is no longer being served in the cafeteria. At some point that has to stop. Right. The cafeteria has to close. But if kids get there later, they still need to eat. Right. So thinking through all these other factors and sometimes as researchers, I don't think we keep those things in mind when we think about the, the day to day needs of the schools that we go into. One of our local schools just created this parent room that also has a laundromat in it. Mm. So while you do, so they have a bunch of educational resources in the front of the room, they have computers, they have materials that FCRR has helped to kind of curate and some other organizations, educational things. So if you're there with your kid, but you can also do your laundry, you can also get food from the food pantry, all this stuff literally right there in the school building. So it's amazing when we start to think about this from a larger kind of a framework, that is not just what are we doing to impact, you know, what's happening just in the classroom, because it's, it's the both end, like you said.
0: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've talked about this, but I I do want to ask you explicitly when you think of ecological systems frameworks, what is it that educators and leaders should keep in mind? I mean, I guess we already talked about this, but again, what should they keep at the forefront really in their mind as they think, about this EST, this ecological systems framework, because I I think sometimes it could feel like, yes, that makes a lot of sense. We should think comprehensively, but sometimes when you're like, okay, we're, we're, we're thinking of a systems framework, it can sometimes feel like, how does that connect to my day to day? So if you were to have some, some insights, explicit things for us, for educators and really leaders in education to think about what should really be at the forefront there.
1: Well, I think the first thing is always intentionality, right? Um, When you start to think from this more of an ecological framework, from the systems framework, from all of these different factors that can be impacting the the kids and families that you're working with, it's hard to turn that off, right? So when you have this intentionality around ensuring we're thinking about all the things that could have an impact on this child's day-to-day life that could impact how they're learning, it's really hard to, to turn away from that, even in your day-to-day kinds of things. So we're always thinking from this lens of if we provide this educational opportunity, right, on one side, okay, we have this really amazing thing. We're going to partner with this museum and we want to give kids background knowledge, you know, around and build exposure, you know, take them on this field trip okay, or give them tickets to this event that's happening on a Saturday. That sounds amazing. But when you're thinking about it from this more integrated framework and a holistic framework, we're thinking about barriers, too, right? How are they going to get there? Is it for just this one kid? Is it for the kid and a parent or is it for the whole family? Right. There are all these factors that then you really just start to become more aware of. And when we also think about this through the lens of asking parents what they need right? Mm -hmm. Being able to ensure that we're looking at this from a needs assessment that values parental input, right? Mm -hmm. We know best practices, of course, but this parent also knows their child. They know their family situation. And I think it's really important that as researchers, when we go into communities, showing that we value the community, right? Mm -hmm. We attend the events of the community. We are responsive to the needs of, you know, both what the school says, not just what, you know, I want to do as the researcher, which is important to you, right? Like we wanna answer great questions that inform and keep the field moving forward, but also what matters to this school and to this community, and how can we build a partnership that's mutually beneficial to allow the work to move forward and also impact those kids this school year, these teachers this administration you know i think that part is really important in the role that, that we play in our local community
0: that's really interesting i've been invested much more recently and maybe over the last few years in translation and implementation science and i think that it's it's a body of work that i think that that benefits researchers and also educators and so i've been trying to figure out ways that we as educators can be informed by the work that you're doing and I like that that aspect of community partnership. I, yeah. I keep itching to jump to the village because you're talking so much <laughs> about it, but I want to dive into your research yeah, a little yeah, bit more. Yeah. And I think this, this will continue to follow the conversation that we've been talking about having this holistic systems approach. And mm. a lot of your research has focused on language and executive functioning development, particularly in underserved communities. Mm. And you know, I read that you had a grant, um, I guess it was in 2017 that was exploring yeah. language and EF in preschoolers and urban settings. So tell us what you've been learning about in, yeah. in, this, in this area. Yeah, and
1: even before that grant, my dissertation focused on executive functioning um in kids who were dialect speakers, uh, AAE and Southern White English. We're here in Florida, so it's a it's a mix, it's an overlap of all the things that sometimes happen with dialect. And it's not, of course, just the African American kids that are using AAE. It's Mm -hmm. the communities that they're in. So I was always really intrigued on why on on this concept of, of dialect shifting and code or code switching. You know, it's known by a bunch of different names, but I was always really intrigued by just this concept of being able to use dialect and language in many different ways. And that led me to think about this from the executive functioning lens. Mm -hmm. And so is this a a higher order kind of planning, you know, working memory, these things that we have to use that are are clearly executive functions, that these children who are bi-dialectal, as we call them, kids who use more than one dialect, that they're able to use and and that they're successful in using it, right? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the work that we've been doing has been looking at executive functioning skills like planning and working memory inhibition specifically because those are the three that we kind of feel are important when we think about what you would do if you were trying to maneuver holding two different language systems in your head while you're responding, right? right? Those are some of the ones. And we know when it comes to executive functioning, it's so hard to tease them apart. But I'm really, really intrigued in whether or not we see the same cognitive advantage that's been found in other populations, like in uh, Spanish-speaking populations, in uh, Greece and other countries, even where they have multiple dialect systems and kind of these systems of hierarchy, for for lack of better words, that people have kind of created around these non-mainstream and mainstream dialects. I think it's fascinating to think about whether we could see that same thing, because here in the United States, for so often, Mm. dialects like African-American English, uh, Southern white English, even those like Gullah Geechee, Appalachian English, they're often so heavily stigmatized Mm. and looked at in negative ways that I'm really interested in not just... We have amazing researchers like Nicole Pagteria, Julie Washington, Holly Craig, who've done the heavy lift of the work around African-American English and dialect and those child characteristics and features so that we can help identify them. I'm more so interested now in how do we leverage the unique skills that they bring to the table and talk about this from because so often a lot of that work is consumed in a deficit based narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. If I'm if I'm black, if I have high density dialect, if I'm growing up in poverty, I'm not going to be able to read. Right. Mm-hmm. And and while we know that there are these positive correlations between these that, you know, there are these correlations between these things. That's not the end of the story. Right. Dialect in and of itself is not what's causing this child not to be able to read proficiently. We mm-hmm. know bilingualism. Right. It's not it's not any of those things. That's the one thing that's causing it. Yeah. And so I'm really, really intrigued. And we have some pilot work where we've looked at some, some samples of students, some who were high dialect speakers where they used a whole lot of dialect, some who are more lower density dialect speakers. We used the Delve, the Diagnostic Evaluation of Language Variation Screener to, to kind of categorize into that strong sum or no dialect variation or no variation from mainstream And what we kind of found was that students who were high-density users, so they used a whole lot of AAE, had stronger uh, executive functioning skills on the Wisconsin card sorting task. Mm -hmm. So they were able to take a task where you have to have planning, inhibition, working memory, and they performed better on that task, which is similar and aligned to what we've seen in Spanish-speaking populations, where it's often called the cognitive advantage. And so- I like to talk about it as leveraging this unique superpower that Black kids have, AAE speakers have, right? Like you can do some pretty amazing things with your language. And if we think about it and come from that perspective, as in these kids are able to do some really, really cool stuff when it comes to metalinguistics, right? Being able to do all this stuff with language, it's a superpower. And if we leverage that as educators, we can use those systems to then help inform how we teach them academic language, right? How we teach them these rules and principles for phonological awareness and even comprehension of the materials that they're reading, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to spend a little bit more time. We've got a lot of other projects happening, but that's yeah. one of the that's one of the initial areas of research that really, really piqued my 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 interest the most in terms of dialect and this cognitive advantage. Mm. But there it's are cool, right.
0: Look, it's yes, cool. I'm fascinated, and I was. Uh, I'll give you a little side note. And uh, I don't know if you listened to Brene Brown's podcast, but she has something called like a sacred pause. Yeah. Because there, because of something that has just happened, where you're just processing, and I'll tell you, my mind is firing in like 15 different directions right now. Yeah. So I just had to take a breath and pause and think about this because it's fascinating, and I think I'll start with. My first thought was on the inter—again, this intersection between mm-hmm. language and EF. And right. I mean, it's it's so fascinating when you think of when I first learned about executive functioning. I—I'll tell you this: I I learned about it as a purely cognitive skill, right? right? That you know, you you have students that need help, like you said, planning. That there's some working memory aspects. And then as I started teaching at Winward, I, I started learning about the elements of how working memory can affect language. How processing right. speed and all right. these things, and then, and then you bring in obviously the social emotional piece of it. But I I really like how you showed this clear connection between EF and language because I think it does provide this other element of this cognitive resilience. I know that a lot of others like Lori Cutting and Famico Haft has Absolutely. talked about in terms yeah. of strong EF skills providing this element of cognitive resilience for language and literacy development. Absolutely. We're now in a in a whole new area like a ball game where now I just need to lock myself away and just research more about what you're talking about. Well, and
1: even thinking about it, we know there's there are these connections. If we I teach a lot of language development classes, right? We know that cognition and language are developing In parallel. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there are these you think about Piaget stages of cognition and what's happening in terms of language development in the first five years of life. They're going in parallel. And when we think about what we also know around um, what what makes up the most variance when it comes to reading performance, Mm -hmm. it ain't dialect. It's language. It is oral language skills. And that's been proven time and time again. Mm LARC, you know, that consortium, Jessica Logan and folks, they've done some amazing work around thinking about what are the things that are impacting reading performance? And when it comes down to it, It is oral language skills. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the SLP in me is always uh, when we go out to certain schools because we do a lot of partnership work where sometimes they say, I don't know something. We've tried all the interventions. Can you just come? And sometimes that's me. I go to the school and just sit and and watch. Right. I go Mm -hmm. look at the kids kind of case history, their MTSS and look at everything. And then it'll I'm like, y'all never tested language. You don't know anything about this child's language skills. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can try all of these interventions, you know, these specific reading interventions. But if you aren't targeting some of these basic or foundational kinds of oral language things, the interventions, you're going to sometimes feel like you're spinning your wheel. Sometimes they get it. Sometimes they don't. And so I'm it's it's such fascinating work. And I think I'm most intrigued by it because it is not from this deficit perspective. I am a speaker of African-American English. Your listeners Mm -hmm. have heard me use dialect today. I think it's Mm -hmm. important to, as a Black woman in this field, to always show up as my authentic. I'm from a rural (laughs) town in South Carolina, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so when you you hear me, you hear all of those things. And I think it's important, even when I talk to my students, I say, if they can't take me as a person who's their professor, who's been doing this work, who has these extra letters, you know, behind their name, using some a a e in class, how how are you going to respond to that client in front of you? If it's cringy when I do it, how are you going to respond to this client, to this family, to this community member, right? right? And so trying to destigmatize these things, but also knowing that it's so important because there are these unique parts of it that we can leverage to then teach and open up even more because my goal as an SLP and even as an educator in this space is I'm never wanting to remove any of the things. I'm just adding to your toolbox. And then yes. the student gets to decide, the family gets to decide when I use it, when I don't use it, when I want to use it, right? That's mm-hmm. that's not my role as
0: the SLP. I'm just giving you more tools for your toolbox. Mm-hmm. I love how you talked about this added approach, this strength-based approach. And as you were talking, I think to even highlight, like you said, AAE and looking at dialectical difference has been stigmatized in the terms of this de- deficit-based model. And right. that reminds me back to again the ecological systems framework as we look at this. And I and I and I think you actually, when you and Nicole and your colleagues wrote the article mm-hmm. of, of approaching ecological systems theory within reading. You explicitly talked about that, that you know, these outlining all of these factors is not the way that you're going to then explain a deficit. It's really looking at what are those potential risk factors, what are those protected? Oh, I just used my hand again. Sorry, it's Harry. Okay, yeah. I should just leave that in. <laughs> For all our readers, I have an AI camera that makes me look a little better at nine o'clock in the morning, but sometimes it makes me move. But anyways, back and I talk with my hands. But when you look at this ecological systems framework that you have protective, you have risk factors, do you see that similarly as what what Dr. Katz and Dr. Petra are doing with the Mm -hmm. risk and resilience framework?
1: Yeah, definitely. And and we've worked together with them, both um, Nicole and I were on um, one of the technical working groups for that -hmm. project that they have where they're looking at some of those frameworks. I think it's, it's important to think about it as we can identify what some of the risks may be, right? Or, mm-hmm. or what some of these factors may be, but also then what are the solutions, right? We can't just, because so often sometimes we're just identifying this kit. It's all these additive risks, right? I'm doing the same thing as you now. It's all these additive <laughs> risks, right? But what are some of the things that we can do or maybe perhaps it's not in our wheelhouse to do, but we help make the school, the systems aware of these things Mm -hmm. so that then we can uh, plan accordingly to help then set kids and families up for their most successful kind of academic years, right? When we think about it from well, if we know some of these, you know risk factors may be this stuff around, because we haven't really talked about like early learning, right? Because that's the uh, another part of a lot of the work that we do through the village, if we know that there are these these factors around kids not or risk factors around no quality high quality preschool, right? Mm-hmm. So what are we doing? <laughs> What, what, how are we answering some of these things? And well, it may not be directly correlated to, to the one research project you came there for, we can start to think about, here are these things that we can do, right? Here are the systems that could be in place around preschool education, pre-K education to, to, to help. So I think it's really impactful to think about not just those those risk factors, but also then how do we provide some solutions towards them? Realizing that as the researchers, we may not be able to mitigate them all, but when you know them, you're able to help think through and help administration, you know, maybe think through some of those from a different lens.
0: Right. I think that's an interesting point. I I wanted to circle back when you said that they may have these risk factors. Right. It's not right. to say that they're going to have them. Right. And I so I think that's interesting. I I think important even neurobiologically to environmentally. And I, I like what you said too, is we already have these tools. Like I'll, I'll say the laser focus in classroom instruction and high quality instruction. When I spoke to Dr. Katz, he was talking about, you know, d- identifying of dyslexia and right. we really need to make sure that the students have access to high quality reading instruction. We have those things, right? We have the supports, like you said, creating areas of family centers in schools so that You know, families have this additional support that they may need or providing breakfast for students because so they're not hungry so that they can sit there and access the high quality curriculum that is in place. And so I think that's an important part is where we have those supports. How are we then leveraging them to put so that they are there for children if or when they need to access them? Right. And that may, I, I don't know where we're
1: going, but that could be an excellent tie-in to what the work of the village is. Right? Yes,
0: I want to talk about the village. tie-in,
1: right? Yeah. Because the village is a, a, a relatively new division for the Florida Center for Reading Research. It was just created in 2019. And essentially, Nicole and I wanted to, and it was, it was uh, somewhat of a replication from the center that she started at Georgia State University, the Urban Child Study Center, where I worked with her there. I did my postdoc with her and Julie Washington there. And then I stayed on as a a research scientist for several years. And when she came to Florida State, you know, a part of that was trying to recreate this thing in in, um, the uh, the local community. Where we are in Tallahassee is, of course, zip code in the state of Florida. Mm. So you have several well-renowned universities, you know, FAMU, Florida State University. We have another community college. We also have an internationally known research center, but three of the schools that I pass on my way to work had failing grades when we moved here, right? Yeah. Poor zip code in the state, right here where we are. And the village, as it is called, is simply a response to, we can't have all this knowledge at the university level that impacts what people are doing across the country around how kids learn how to read but not make more of an impact locally, mm-hmm. so it is truly a place-based, very centralized and focused on Tallahassee and our surrounding counties, but very much focalized on helping us, you know, provide community engagement and outreach. Mm-hmm. And so the Village works in three ways. I'm the current director of the Village. Now that uh, Nicole has moved on to d- to being the director of SCRR. Mm-hmm. So I've been the director since 2021, and our goals are really to, we call them our three C's, connect, champion, and uh, collaborate. So we want to, one, connect. Uh, to our different partners and stakeholders. And those can be any, any people. It could be our local school district, but it could also be the public media system, right? It's our PB, mm-hmm. local PBS station. It's our public library. It's organizations that are specifically focused on advancements for health outcomes for young children, right? Doing community screening for birth to five. Mm-hmm. All of those different organizations are our partners and mm-hmm. we connect with them simply by being thought partners a lot of the time, right? If you have a question about, is this the right curriculum that we should be using? Is this intervention appropriate for this thing? Or is this what we should be doing? We can help you think through that using the evidence, right? So connecting our partners to evidence that's around the the reading and language research, but also when they have questions that are clearly not in our wheelhouse, we work at an, at an entire university. Somebody knows, like, Mm -hmm. I can't tell you about the STEM stuff, but I'm sure we can find someone who can help you. Right. Right, So being that that connecting um, factor, I think, is important. Right. Because a part of any research practice partnership is building relationships. And Mm -hmm. so that is the way that we truly do that. We build relationships. And we did that for a full year and a half before we even broached any subjects of any kind of actual research. Right. The second C is for champion. There's a lot of amazing work happening in local communities all over the country, right? And so we wanted to ensure that we were coming in to support, not, you know, kind of, you know, have the seat at the table, but not necessarily pull the table away and say, hey, these researchers are coming in. They know best. Y'all listen to us. That's Mm -hmm. not our role at all. So if that means I get to go judge the Tropicana speech contest or the spelling bee, or we host a literacy night or partner with them. We've been doing some amazing parent engagement events. We've been doing community like kids fest Mm -hmm. kinds of events where we bring books to life, where we provide the information to families, but also then, you know, that's evidence-backed, but also show up in our community, feeling like we're touchable. As Mm -hmm. and that's what a reading coach said to me. She said that she didn't think that we were touchable that they couldn't just send an email and ask a question to someone, you know, at our at our center. So the village is kind of helping to bridge and be that liaison. And then, of course, it is a research center. We got to do research. The last yeah. thing is collaborate. So that's when we have true just relationships where we create and build studies based on the needs of our partners. Mm-hmm. So the work is really, really exciting. And I love it because I get to I get to do the research, but I also get to do the things that disseminate our work in such a way that it's impacting these families right now, these kids, mm-hmm. these, students, these teachers right now, which I think is always really, really helpful. And it's meeting their needs. And yes. so we've had a, a, a great last few years since we've we even through COVID, we've had some, some projects that we've kicked out specifically based on the needs of our partners, We're working with our our local school district. Like I said, we've got projects with so many different partners. I'm even serving as a a, a member of a a leadership circle for this organization called Sister Friends, which is a Black maternal health outcomes organization Mm -hmm. that's really just focused on improving. We know all of the disparities around maternal health outcomes in Black women. And so it's an organization specifically around that. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with FCRR? We know how important healthy language is in the first year, in yeah. the first five years. So we serve in this role to be able to create, pull together workshops, presentations, information, all of these things that are impactful for new moms who may not have ever heard this before. It's not that they don't want to do it. They've never they've never been shared this information. So it I get to do and build a lot of these partnerships
0: and, and help to kind of sustain them. So
1: it's really, really fun work.
0: Yeah. And again, speaking to this intersection from a systems framework, I want to dive further into the village. You already gave it away, which I'm so happy you did because I'm sure our readers are at the edge of their seats or if they're walking, maybe they're jogging at this point because they're so excited. You will be on for a second episode where we will dive deeper into the village on partnerships and implications for leadership. I'm so excited to talk more about that. And we have limited time. So I want to talk about Maya's Book Nook. Okay. I first learned about you through through finding Maya's book nook. And I know you talked about how you were just that avid reader, you know, mm-hmm. reading with your flashlight on into the wee hours of the night. And you you started this book book nook for your daughter, Maya. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So tell, tell me more about that.
1: OK, so so it's it's named after my daughter, Maya. She's currently seven years old. It back in 2017 when she was two and it was really just a way of me on my personal social media feeds. I was sharing I think during Black History Month I said hey I'm going to share all these books by Black authors right mm-hmm. because I was off I'm the type I'm also one of those creatives I like to make things and for baby shower gifts I was always giving these books of like super diverse kids and like creating little onesies and stuff and I kept saying I'm going to do something so Black History Month um, in 2017, I literally every day shared books by Black authors. Mm-hmm. And so many parents were saying, I've never seen so many books that featured Black and brown characters.
0: Mm-hmm. And I'm
1: like, they're out there. You got to look. Right, <laughs> but, right. but they are out there. And I kept hearing, you should create a website. I'm like, I don't have time for that. Right. <laughs> but in 2018, Black History Month rolled around again. I did it again. And then I shortly thereafter decided to start the website. Mm -hmm. And it has truly grown and and flourished and blossomed. And it really is a, a way to just promote strong language and literacy skills through diverse children's books. Mm -hmm. And so on the website and through the social media pages, there's everything from book themed, book lists, recommendations, but also then guides to support the book. We call them beyond the book guides because it is not just, of course, let me just read this book or get access to books it's so much more than what we're doing beyond the book right so the conversations that surround the text so we create these completely free guides that are available on the website that get shared that are useful for both teachers and practitioners as well as families because we want the information to be accessible to all who are interested in kind of reading those books so author reviews, all kinds of things, crafts, any and everything you can think of that's related to books. But then also, how can I use them to to be, you know, educational? So I have picks around like how you choose good books when you're reading with your kids or when you want to use them, you know, at schools, because every book is not a good book for a teachable moment, right, or for a classroom setting. So I think that it's, it's a little, it's a passion project, but it is one that I've been grateful to kind of start to also merge. And as Maya of course, has gotten older, the website you know the the information kind of changes. where she's reading chapter books now. so um, but we do feature things from from um zero to probably about eight, sometimes maybe about thirteen or so. so you can see book recommendations and lists for that group.
0: Oh, I love that. and we'll we'll definitely have the website up on the And what I the really thing that, that that was most fascinating to me is you said, it does provide these areas to facilitate language development and intersecting the work of creating diverse books so that people that people, that children can see themselves in books, right? I think that's Absolutely. one thing that we've sort of thought about, like in terms of thinking about like cultural hegemony of of seeing how literature, can, or that literature should be more diverse, that children of color should be seeing themselves in the story. And you're intersecting with this language, this aspect of language development. So I thought that was really fascinating. Was that your original, when you, when you first created it, was that something that you had was thinking in, in, about in the forefront? Yeah. Tell me more. Definitely.
1: Mostly because, I mean, I didn't want it to just be another kind of book blog. I, I mean, and I follow tons of book bloggers, but I wanted it to always, I, as, just a person who's always thinking about language and knowing about just the importance of um, literacy skills and how I can use this book, the same book from, you know, when the kid's three to now when this kid is six or seven, the same book, how it can grow with the child. I can do different things with it. If I could be, you know, a conduit to help parents kind of think through that. And even practitioners as an SLP, I use books throughout therapy. So I do a lot of talks around how do you incorporate books? And I think that It's important as we strive to be more culturally responsive using authentic materials. I always talk about ensuring the materials we use reflect the students that are in front of you, right? So Mm -hmm. ensuring students not only see themselves, but they see themselves in ways that are valuable. We're not just doing this during these historic kind of heritage months, and it's from this historic perspective. But kids doing regular things, and we use them in the same way that we would use Click, Clack, Moo or any other book, right? Mm Right. You know, there are all these amazing stories that are starting to be written and the publishing world has a lot of work to do. That's a whole nother podcast around diversity in children's books. I mean, it's increasing, but there is there are still more books that are written about animals and non-human things like unicorns, robots, transformers. Right. Then when you tally up all the percentage of students of color or, or, or characters of color. More about animals. Wow, right? Yeah. So, and and we're not even going to talk about the percentage. I think it's maybe four, uh, maybe three percent. I don't have the graphic in front of me, but it's it's definitely less than five students with disability or characters with disabilities, characters that represent LGBTQIA plus populations. It is small, small. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it, it's important to, there's research that shows children are more engaged with the text that they're reading when there are characters that look like them in it. Morgan and Morgan have done some work in that area. And if we want to kind of meet children where they are, find stories that are representative of their culture, of their values. And then of course, once you do that part, let's expand it even more and introduce other other cultures, groups, other ways of doing life because it just expands their horizons for other communities that they may never access. Maya knows way more about so many things than I ever do than I ever did as a kid her age simply because we read so many books. Yeah. So I, I love it. It's a it's a passion project and it takes a lot of time. I wish I had more time that I could dedicate to the website and to the to the social media pages, but it's it's definitely a passion project for sure.
0: Oh, I'm so glad that we talked about it. And again, in our next episode, I do want to dive into Maya's Book Nook a little more. And we have limited time. I wish I could just spend the entire day with you just talking. This we'll felt like, out. I know this <laughs> felt like, just like the two of us just having coffee or, you know, uh, tea or whatever we are. And like, on it's yeah, a cloudy day it. in New York and you're just like brightening my day. But I have one more question for you. What are you and Maya reading right now?
1: You know, that's a terrible question to ask a book blogger. (laughs) What are we reading right now? Right now, now she's really into series. Um, So she is loving the Magnificent Makers series. I cannot think of the author's name, but she is a scientist and it's a book about this classroom of kids, three in particular, and they go on these like super, it's a chapter book. So Uh, an early reader chapter book. And so they go on these amazing, like scientific adventures. They have themes around like either coding or engineering or, but they're all really science focused. And then they have some experiments in the back. So she's making her way through the series. I think she's on book five right now that just came out earlier at the beginning of the year. So Mm. she, she's really, really loving that. We always love to read books that are affirming, so we love any kind of a book that affirms hair and skin and and you know being who you are. Um I'll say that what I'm what I'm reading currently is I'm reading Michelle Obama's most recent book. That's my current read. And we're we're just we're we're excited. The website she has some things that she wants to do now that she's older. She wants to start a book club. Uh, she wants to go live more often, mm-hmm. so you know we're we're shifting as she gets older right. and adding and incorporating in some other things. But yeah, she's really really begging for a book club and to do weekly lives. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to be her manager, yeah. to reach out. <laughs> i
0: <I'll laughs> put- Doesn't have time. Right. Well, you all readers heard it here first. And I I can't be a manager, but I'll definitely be someone who tunes in. So I'll be your audience. And I know all of our readers that are listening will definitely be your audience as well. Okay. So I think we just skimmed the surface of this conversation. There's so much more to learn from you. I'm so excited you're coming back. Thank you, Dr. Lakeisha Johnson, for being on the Read Podcast. Thank you so much, Danielle, for inviting me. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in course. Yay. So thank you all for listening to this episode of The Read Podcast with Dr. Lakeisha Johnson. You can learn more about Lakeisha's work by visiting my top read bookmarks or top moments from each episode. Those can be found on thereadpodcast.org. You can also access all my top read bookmarks from experts from our past episodes. I continuously strive to connect you and learn from inspiring leaders like Dr. Lakeisha Johnson if you have any thoughts, questions, or ideas of topics and speakers, feel free to reach out via email at info at I also invite you to like, subscribe, and share the Read Podcast with friends and colleagues. And you can also follow or like Winward's social media pages to find out more about upcoming speakers, episodes, and events. So with that being said, Dr. Lakeisha Johnson, can you do our send off until next time, readers? Until next time, readers.